in the present circumstances, so honored by Pence, uh, that that clearly is no longer the case. That is now a moot question. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, by way of testifying to the respect in which science fiction has become uh, an acknowledged cousin of the mainstream, I would have pointed out that uh, among the people attending the Congress, uh, Kobo Abe and Margaret Atwood have both written notable science fiction novels. Uh, among the people who uh, were or would have been invited uh, from England, uh, there's J.G. Ballard and Brian Aldiss, uh, men who've made their careers as science fiction writers. There's also such mainstream writers who've done notable science fiction works as William Golding and Doris Lessing. Uh, in Italy, there's the great example of Italo Calvino, uh, who will not be with us uh, uh, for reasons we all regret. Uh, and uh, on the other side of this country uh, are two women who I very much wished here, wished could be here because it would be nice to have the other sex upon this panel. Uh, Ursula Le Guin and Joanna Russ are two writers I admire enormously. And uh, then there are the panelists who are here, uh, whom I'd like to introduce. And uh, I will pose the question uh, afterwards to each of them uh, to give some account of their own regard for science fiction as readers and to make a an imaginary invitation to somebody that they would particularly like to see on this panel uh, uh, <laughs> with us, uh, so that it's not only I who get to extend these imaginary invitations. Um, immediately to my right uh, is Leslie Fiedler, who is uh, uh, our great legitimizing presence uh, <laughs> a, a distinguished critic, I believe, is the term, and one who has caused uh, more cries of uh, dismay and protest than any living critic, and I think this is the greatest tribute that criticism uh, can receive. Uh, certainly his um, views of the matter have triumphed to the extent that we all know about Huckleberry Finn now. He is. He is. He has uh, written uh, in Across uh, the Border and Close the Gap uh, on the subject of, of science fiction, and uh, he has uh, championed it. Uh, uh, in, in ways that, that uh, oh, hmm, are heroically magnanimous. Uh, and he has also been an anthologist of science fiction uh, on the book Dreamers Awake and a writer of science fiction himself. Uh, he's written the novel 
the messengers will come no more. And a science fiction story that the next Harlan Ellison uh, anthology will include what used to be called dead uh, whenever dangerous visions (laughs) happens again. To his right is John Crowley, who's the author of the science fiction novel Engine Summer and other science fiction novels, which I'm a great admirer of, and also the author of a epic-sized fantasy novel, uh, of which I have said, and others too, uh, that it is the best fantasy novel ever written, period. Uh, I won't elaborate upon my high regard. Uh, To my left is Samuel R. Delaney, whom I expect I will be addressing as Chip uh, throughout uh, this panel because I have known him by that name for 20 years and it is a habit hard to break. Readers will know him as Samuel R. Delaney and he is probably the science fiction, American science fiction writer uh, of the present day whose work stands in highest regard among people of mm, literary taste. Uh, his latest book, uh, Tales of Navarian, boasts a most becoming uh, tribute from Umberto Eco. Uh, uh, I envy that. <laughs> <laughs> to his left is John Calvin Batchelor, Uh, and uh, he uh, represents, uh, as it were, the crossover from the other direction in that he has has probably been regarded um, critically as a mainstream author. Even his uh, one most certainly science fictional book, Birth of the People's Republic of Antarctica, uh, which accurately forecasted and described the Falkland Wars, war. Uh, John's sensibility from his first novel, and including the uh, next novel that he is prospectively working on, uh, is one that, that typifies to me the kind of imagination which I think of as science fictional whether it bears that label by its publisher or not. Uh, I'm very happy that, that, that uh, he and Leslie uh, uh, are, are here uh, showing that there is a brotherhood between uh, the mainstream and ourselves. Uh, the, uh, the dwellers of what once, and may still be, a ghetto. I will soon stop. Uh, But first I had to... No, no, I'll do that later, because I have that question. (laughs) I'm doing this without notes. (laughs) Uh, So the question that I posed before, to let each of the panelists uh, make their invitations and tell something about their own relation to science fiction uh, 
and I will lean back and have some water. Uh, why don't we just go across from that side to this side? John? Uh, oh, I'm Tom right. Dish. <laughs> I, I, could, I could introduce him a little too. He's a def, uh, like uh, Samuel Delaney, is one of those uh, science fiction authors most respected by people who otherwise don't uh, evince a lot of interest in science fiction. Camp Concentration 334 and On Wings of Song, which was nominated for major literary prizes outside the science fiction field. Now, if I'm begin, am I pointed to? Uh, in, a, in a gathering which might be supposed to contain at least some people who uh, haven't read a lot of science fiction, I can use the wonderful chestnut, the author of which I can't remember, but it might have been Theodore Sturgeon, who when asked what was the golden age of science fiction, said 12. <laughs> That's when I, as my, in my response to this question, I read some science fiction when I was about that age, or maybe a little earlier, when it's at its most wonderful and astonishing, and you can read books which seem to you to contain just amazing wisdom, which you have not otherwise been uh, made privy to in books like Foundation and uh, world-shaking, universe-shaking, universe, the borning and dying kinds of novels that are just amazing. For some reason, I, uh, like, some like some teenagers grow out of stamp collecting or grow out of uh, a lot of other things, I, I didn't persist in it. Uh, I think there are, must be two kinds of people, one who do persist in it and one who don't. Uh, I didn't. And when I came back to science fiction in the late 1960s, um, I hadn't read any for years. I came back to it under the effect of other kinds of impulses coming arising out of the 60s, which is sort of a science fiction sort of period in itself, and uh, conceived and wrote a novel which I suppose to be totally original, which I suppose that no other novel like it existed. It was a novel about how after the collapse of technological civilization, a quiet race of illiterates living in sort of communal circumstances uh, would generate a culture of their own, not based on, uh, based somewhat on their faded memories of the technological civilization of long ago. To my enormous surprise, when I started looking into it, there were dozens of novels of almost exactly <laughs> this kind. Mine was different from, in many respects from all of them, but certainly I had not thought up something new, which really surprised me. Um, and I began to read some of these new kinds of science fiction novels and found out that the genre had very much changed since uh, I had last looked into it. Um, and there are ways in which I still regard myself as outside the field and having chosen to write science fiction novels not because they were science fiction novels but because there is a possibility in the writing of science fiction novels for a beginning author to write any sort of novel he chooses to write um, and have it bought by respectable publishers and sold at least in limited numbers to a faithful and uh, even greedy audience and thereby make a kind of life for himself in literature that is uh, reminiscent in some ways anyway of an older age when a uh, modest literary life was possible to hardworking and imaginative people uh, writing for a faithful and attentive audience. 
uh, and I really enjoy that prospect. It has come to be since then. I have become often restive within the parameters of, the, of that field, that ghetto, banging on the doors as they closed at evening. <laughs> but uh, I have still the greatest gratitude for that audience and that possibility of writing books and selling them and making money doing it so that I don't have to do other things. <laughs> That's uh, where I stand at this time. I did try to break out one time, but I got pressed back down again. There was a piece of Tom's announced question which you didn't answer. Who would oh. you have invited here? Oh, I'm, that's true. What I, th I have, it is my impression, having gone to some science fiction conventions and spoken to the, some of the greats in the field, that the ones who um, would immediately come to mind would feel awed in this surrounding, somewhat. And the discussion that would arise from them would be a little impenetrable to uh, <laughs> a non-science fiction audience if you had invited, for if you had invited and uh, they had agreed to come, if you had invited Robert Heinlein, um, Isaac Asimov, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, uh, Frank Herbert, uh, authors of that stature and standing, who are certainly the giants of science fiction but also uh, the most, in some ways, the most insular of its, of its authors, which is as it should be, I suppose. But uh, Ursula Le Guin, I would think, I would most like to uh, uh, have a chat with, if that's uh, an answer. There was a time in my life uh, when I was young, really young, when I read everything and enjoyed it all in the same way. I used to say, when I still lived in an unfallen state and didn't realize that there were kinds of literature which you should feel proud of having read and enjoyed and kinds of literature which you should read furtively and be a little ashamed of enjoying. Being a perverse sort of person, when I discovered that that's what I, that I was brainwashed into in my courses in literature in the university and in graduate school, when I discovered there were certain kinds of literature which one could still read but only with the shades drawn down in the closet, as it were, I decided that that was the kind of literature to which eventually I would return when the other kinds of required literature it worn out its pleasures for me. Another way of saying what I meant is I discovered there were two kinds of literature, required literature and optional literature. That is canonical literature, literature which you read in class and got grades for doing and, uh, you know, which you could boast about to your culturally aspiring neighbors, and other kinds of literature which you read for sheer pleasure. Uh, when I began writing as a critic, it, it took me very long to do anything. I didn't publish a book until I was nearly 40 years old. And when I first published my book, although I wrote about many books which belonged to optional rather than required literature, I felt required in order to win my academic audience to be a little condescending about them. 
but uh, as I grew older, and especially under the impact of the 60s, which made all the difference, made all the difference, I decided to be born again, uh, be born in the image of my own children. One of the fortunate things I've done in the world, besides producing 25 books, which haven't done me much good, is producing eight children, which have done me at least the good of producing nine grandchildren. Uh, <laughs> You, you don't you, you don't get those uh, returns from books published. <laughs> I decided I would spend the rest of my life as a critic attempting to break down the barrier between popular literature, optional literature, majority literature, and required literature, canonical literature, minority literature. And I was especially interested in one form of popular literature, which has the distinction of, had the distinction of being in the old days minority pop <laughs> science fiction, right? Which was popular literature, which in the sense that it wasn't accepted by academic uh, or established criticism, but on the other hand, never had a wide audience. Instead, it had, as it were, a congregation of devotees mostly young white males. Uh, had a particularly limited character because of that, but on the other hand, an interesting one too, since this group was a group which also was a spokesman for the so-called cultural revolution of the 1960s. I guess I, I, I like getting back into that literature again because it broke my own connection with my own past before I had been academicized. And it established contact with me, for me again, with my friends who had not, like me, gone on to get a BA, MA, PhD, right? And uh, that is to say, I, I wanted to find a kind of literature which was potentially capable of uniting everybody, not dividing them further. This sounds like a little bit like Tolstoy's What Was Art That's Meant to Sound. Uh, <laughs> like that. But uh, I, I want to say briefly now, uh, and we'll come back to some of these things, I'm sure, as we go on, that one of the things that disconcerted me was when science fiction ceased becoming minority pop literature and began to become majority pop literature. By the number of paperback books which are sent to me every year now, science fiction and related fantasy, I, 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 it, it's clear to me that science fiction is now the reigning form of pop literature, with a possible exception of the woman's romance, which may be running on ahead someplace. That's the kind of literature that interests me too, but that's a subject for another day. Uh, I, I, I think the interesting thing which is happening in science fiction is that science fiction has, in this sense at least, got de-ghettoized, partly de-ghettoized, it's become immensely popular and even so popular that uneasy academics and professional writers of what science fiction writers call an odd way mainstream writers. Uh, nobody feels he's in the mainstream. Everybody feels he's, uh, you know, just a little uh, rivulet trickling and it's a tributary to something which is invisible down there toward the Gulf, perhaps. Uh, uh, the, the problem is the price which science fiction has to pay for getting out of the ghetto, even as inconclusively getting out of the ghetto. What is the price you pay for getting a panel at the international pen meeting in New York, New York? What is your price you pay for the fact 
that a science fiction writer now can write a bestseller as was absolutely impossible before the 60s. What is the price you pay now uh, for the fact that a science fiction writer, by contributing a story, say, to Omni, can get paid an astonishing sum, a sum which would have astonished Heinlein and Asimov and all those people uh, in the old days? Having said this much, you probably know that I have a sneaking fondness for the oldie-timey science fiction writers science fiction writers of the golden age, meaning the science fiction writers who never learned to write so that a 12-year-old couldn't read them, right? <laughs> Even though they themselves got much older than 12. The person I would have invited I here, I think, if I had my own free will, is the member of that old, same generation as uh, Asimov and Heinlein, who I especially respect because he is just a little crazier than the rest. Asimov especially has been taken over by creeping sanity uh, <laughs> as the years have gone by and he's turned into the kind of guru who appears in the pages of the magazine you take out of the seat in front of you in an airplane. Uh, Heinlein always disturbs me. I mean, uh, fascists uh, have imaginations which create dreams which appeal to me too. Uh, but uh, He's a bit too much. No, the one I really like and would have loved to invite here is Philip Jose Farmer. Uh, Philip Jose Farmer is uh, one of the few writers in the world that I made a pilgrimage to see. Having read him for the first time a number of years ago, I penetrated into darkest Midwestern mid-America to Peoria, Illinois, where he insists on living. He tried L.A. and couldn't stand it. And there I discovered he was every bit as crazy as I thought he was. Uh, <laughs> in a boring dinner in what seemed a house that seemed indistinguishable from the other suburban houses around the edge of Peoria. When I began to pay attention to what he was saying, I discovered he was talking about a ghost whose exact location he had identified in his bedroom, at which point his wife looked up and in a voice which couldn't have been done better by an actress on the stage imitating Midwestern said, Oh, don't say that, Phil. They'll think you're crazy. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> well, the, the first thing that occurs to me, is this, is this working well? The, fir the, the first thing that occurs to me, uh, of course, is uh, in thinking about uh, pen panels and, and things like that, one has to remember that one appearance on the Phil Donahue show does not necessarily mean the revolution has come. Um, writers are, are always eccentric readers, and uh, my own reading of science fiction, um, just in that eccentric way that it happened, um, was uh, had, a, had a kind of interesting juxtaposition. It just so happened that when I was about 14, or somewhere between 13 and 14, uh, I decided to read in the same three-month period, War and Peace and the Foundation series. Um, and as a 14-year-old, um, I remember my reaction. One of them seemed to be about history, and the other one seemed to be about a historical period. Uh, and this, these were two different responses. And, of course, the one that seemed to be about history itself was the Foundation series. Um, somehow, uh, by setting the story in the future, by uh, putting in all these, even at 14, comparatively unbelievable um, characters doing comparatively unbelievable things, what you were left with, the, the, the recognizable things that you were left with, were the structure 
and the organization of the various things that were happening, and you could you could respond to them as as abstract structures, and they seem to be they seem to represent a vast understanding of the larger workings of the you know the world that is was the case. Um, the um, and even so, in, and yet at the same time, I was I was al already aware enough of, of um, what the world going around uh, on around me was, so that when one came to the odd essay in in the Tolstoy ab about uh, great men uh, forming uh, historical, you know, forming historical, um, uh, being very important to history, this whole the whole great man theory of history, it didn't seem right, and I was very much aware that this was in direct opposition to what I was reading in um, in, in in Asimov. Um, the um, and and so I uh, I was aware of the two th of the two forms being distinct. I, I did never I never had that unfallen state that Leslie talks about, where I I, I thought that this these two these two things were the same thing that they, they somehow um, that they're that they could be looked at in the same way. Uh, the the ghetto aspect of science fiction one I don't think is anywhere near as easy to, to give up uh, as it uh, sometimes appears just by putting people on a panel I don't think that's the way it occurs um, the, another point I'd like to ma make also in terms of some of the things that Leslie said uh, science fiction as far as I know represents about 14% of all the new fiction published in the United States today uh, this I just don't see how you can say that this means that it is taken over uh, in any particular way. When it gets to be about fifty, then 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 one can argue, you know reasonably argue that it is, that it's taking 14 over. Fourteen percent is pretty considerable. It's I pretty mean, it, it, you know, it'd, it'd be hard to find another subgroup that that's higher. Uh, although we yeah, all it's <laughs> highest. It's highest. According to my publisher, it's just become higher, higher than mysteries, higher than romances. Uh, I don't think it's still. Sales. Is it real? Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. okay. There, there. Well, there you go. Uh, higher than perhaps other other genres per se. So, I, but I, I throw the figure out for what tiny little it's worth. Uh, the two okay. science fiction writers that I would like to invite, or the two writers that I would like to invite oh, here, mine, yeah. who indeed happen to be science fiction writers, if on the best of all possible worlds, uh, one of course is dead, uh, is Theodore Sturgeon and probably Joanna Russ. Uh, those are two writers who I've always admired a great deal and uh, wish I had more t opportunity to talk to. So, onward, ever onward. Yes, I, I'm John Batchelor, and uh, this is coming back at me. I want to begin uh, by saying uh, how pleased I am to be here. It was great, great of Tom to invite me. Uh, the moment he did, I felt better, <laughs> immensely better, about having written Antarctica because um, it, was, uh, it was treated as literature, and uh, I'd always considered it to be uh, just a book. And uh, I discovered, uh, shockingly, that there was this distinction made and that I was going to be reviewed completely differently by people who didn't talk to each other. Uh, I want to begin by answering the last question first, just because um, I, I think it makes my point. Whom I would have invited here uh, are dead people. Um, Dostoevsky, I would have liked to hear what he had to make of, um, of this uh, gathering, uh, in particular because I, I had occasion to reread re the Karamazov books, uh, the two volumes in the Penguin recently, having not read them since I was 18 years old, and discovered that uh, what I had loved about them was uh, what I would pursue in life, which was Dostoevsky thinking about the future. There's a section early in the book uh, that seems peripheral to the action uh, when they are debating the ecclesiastical courts. 
uh, and uh, the statement is made, um, utopian statement is made, that the state, uh, the, the church that El Yoisha is, um, uh, is uh, thinking about joining should become the state, and that this would solve all the problems of late 19th century Russia. And the counter is made by the wise man that no, 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 the state should become the church. And it was then dismissed. The action moves on. And uh, although the Grand Inquisitor seems to address this later on, uh, this particular statement is not uh, addressed again. And when I read that, I realized that what I had liked about Karamazov was precisely the fact that Dostoevsky was willing to think about the future and, in fact, speculate in such, an, in such a fashion that it was frightening to me. Uh, because in the Soviet Union that I visited last summer, uh, the state has become a church. They're, in, they're, they're inextricably bound up. Uh, to be anti-Soviet is to be a heretic in every sense of the word and to suffer the same consequences. And so I would have liked to have had Dostoevsky here and ask him exactly what the hell he was up to in speculating so accurately about what would happen to his country. Was he indeed being a pessimist, or did he actually have the, um, have the, um, have the uh, pleasure of predicting the future? The other person I would have liked to have had here today was Solzhenitsyn to follow this course. Uh, and this for a more obscure reason, but it's explicable again, because what I've always liked about so-called literature is the, um, the anti-utopian features, which I think is acceptable as science fiction. Um, I know it's acceptable as science fiction because that's what I've always loved since I was 12 years old, to think about the future and to think about the future state. Um, in the Battle of Borodino, uh, Napoleon, it, with a head cold, had the genius to say that we will break the Russians at the center. And he massed his guns for the first time in all of his battles, massed somewhat over 300 guns, many 12-pounders and lesser weight guns. And so the barrage began at 6 a.m. in a fashion that you we would ordinarily recognize as a First World War barrage. And it tore regiments apart. And the battle proceeded all day about uh, to, to circle around that center of the line that Napoleon was thrashing with his guns. He wanted to blow his way to Moscow, not to fight his way to Moscow. The Russians were required, uh, Kutuzov was required to mass his guns in the center too. Now, this ordinarily doesn't seem like science fiction, but I would make the speculation, and Tolstoy, Tolstoy dances around the fact, but um, he, had his own, um, he had his own horses to beat. I would make the speculation that uh, Napoleon was endeavoring to live out a vision of the future. He saw warfare. He saw mass murder on the battlefield. Uh, in 1914, why I would ask Solzhenitsyn here, in 1914, Solzhenitsyn makes the very proud point, you know he, he was an artilleryman in the Second World War, the very proud point that the Russians wasted their guns at, uh, at the Battle of uh, Tannenberg, that it was the Germans who that early in the war, August of 1914, had the good sense to experiment with uh, coordinated field fire uh, connected by radio line, I mean by telephone lines, so that when their guns fired, they concentrated on fire points and moved along just as if they could see what they were doing. Uh, they had it mapped out in a grid, exactly what Napoleon had done at Borodino over a century earlier. And I think, once again, Solzhenitsyn is speculating at that point, since he's, he, since he's telling the story from the point of view of a man living through this battle, 
He's speculating about the future. Now, the irony of it, of course, is that we know what the First World War turned into, and we know that today uh, the two superpowers, America and the Soviet Union, are still locked with this concept of warfare. The way you win is you blow the center out of your enemy. We have large cannons, but it is the same concept that Napoleon invented at Borodino. Now, I don't find any conflict at all in my mind between thinking of that as science fiction and why we are here today. Science fiction, I, I'm going to make a bold statement just, to, just, to, just because I uh, feel like it. Um, uh, I've attended the, I attended the first day here, and I listened to the talk about uh, the state, the imagination of the state, and everybody struggling with the problem. And now I read about uh, this alienation business yesterday, uh, I would say that uh, so far from being a genre which is popular and um, um, I easily dismissed by uh, publishing and literary circles, we, in fact, represent a, a group of writers um, whose, lists, whose list is, is, is lengthy who are the most serious writers here today. We're not willing to write a book that talks strictly about divorce, we are not willing to write a book that talks strictly about reconciliation to some war in the past. Um, the theme in every science fiction novel that I like and every novel that is science fiction, whether the author knows it or not, is not, is about the future, is about what will be. The irony is that it happens sometimes, but that's not the science fiction writer's problem. His, his, his challenge to himself and herself is to write down what he or she thinks is going to come about from this convergence of technology and genius and human depravity. I'd, I'd have to throw that in just to make a moral claim that Napoleon was not being a good man when he massed his guns. He was being shrewd, he was being foresightful, but he was not being a good man. So that um, I, I feel, when I, with Antarctica, I feel that I was being terribly serious. There was nothing... I never grinned when I wrote that book. I don't grin when I read it. And, and so that uh, the idea that science fiction is something that you do for entertainment is, um, I, I'd say that's in the eye of the beholder because I know these gentlemen here with me tonight, uh, t this morning, are uh, deadly serious people. I mean, we laugh a lot, but uh, Chip's books are gruesome to read uh, just because he he actually pushes into the future. He, he sets you up in a situation in which the, the, your moral grounds are gone. You don't recognize it. Uh, on Wings of Song, Tom's book about the immediate future here in New York City, I can remember the, the scene where he has his character wandering down in overheated, the overheated streets of New York wearing tennis shorts um, and nothing else. I think he was carrying a radio, but I'm not exactly sure. And I pictured it actually... I pictured myself actually on that street, and I felt extremely uncomfortable. Um, uh, extre I mean, not only uncomfortable because it was so hot, but because I can imagine it, I could see it happening. It frightened me. Um, I'll, I'll end up by coming back to the reverse. I read science fiction, uh, as John Crowley said, at, at the perfect age of 12, and if I had my druthers, I would have always been 12. Uh, I had more fun discovering Tolkien and... Um, 1984 all at once in one summer than I've ever had again. Uh, I don't know why I left sci science fiction uh, when I went to college, but I, had, I, I have a feeling it had a great deal to do with the pretensions of, of matriculation 
and the uh, course curriculum that I was handled, world literature, uh, and which did not include a single volume that I was interested in because it had no science fiction on it. But I went ahead and read it. So it was many years before I felt confident enough to return to the fact that this is what I really loved and to admit to myself that uh, I was always going to be a failure as a literary reader because I just did not get much enjoyment out of reading Jane Austen again and again and again. But I would never, ever stop being, uh, being happy about uh, looking at parts of 1984 and wondering what the hell Orwell was up to. Tom, yeah, I'm sorry. Th I, that's all I have to say. Um, there we have the testimonials. <laughs> now you know why, if you haven't been reading science fiction, you should be reading science fiction. And um, I can't elaborate upon that, but uh, the next mental note in my mind uh, does spring from some of the things that John was saying. And also from remark, a remark that uh, Mailer made in passing when he was justifying the title of the conference theme, the state of the imagination, the imagination of the state, George Steiner had taken exception to this in the Sunday Times and uh, implied that it was balderdash and uh, not grammatical. Mailer was offended, and he defended the theme uh, by citing uh, the collective unconscious as um, that it, he was supposing that the imagination of the state, that is to say, the imaginative faculty possessed by the collectivity called the state, uh, could be equated with the collective unconscious and that an expression of the American collective unconscious would be uh, our having sent a man to the moon. Now, <laughs> if that is so, and, and if you doubt, as I do, that there is such a thing as a collective unconscious, and you want to look to the actual causes that made many people collectively imagine going to the moon, there's some rather good documentation on the matter uh, in that uh, two or three of the astronauts have testified that their first inspiration in wanting for so long to be astronauts was in having read one of Robert Heinlein's juvenile novels about sending young men into outer space. Now, uh, Heinlein was one of the first to to write a juvenile novel, but I've always maintained that science fiction has been, up until very recently, mostly a form of children's literature. Uh, the golden age is 12, right? That's another way of saying the same thing. Uh, if so, then the consensus of the science fiction imagination, which is to say the imaginations of many individual writers, there was a consensus that space travel could exist, uh, that it should exist, that it would someday exist. And that collective faith grew by increments visibly 
over the years that I grew up. I can remember seeing the first Chesley Bonstell book with the glorious four-color illustrations of what it would look like if you could just get a little closer. And that, that, that side of um, science fiction, well, it's happening again. Most interestingly, the whole Star Wars controversy is posited, one thing, upon a, a movie. that it, it derives its name from a movie <coughs> that shows certain kinds of magical weapons uh, that, um, that work with lasers. None of us knew, none of us in this room probably could um, design a good laser weapon. Uh, few of us could give a theory of their operation, yet doesn't every one of us believe that somehow maybe it could happen? It might not work, and what we fear is that it wouldn't work, but the faith that it could happen is based really upon a new consensus of the science fiction imagination, and that has once again been the work of science fiction writers that very few people here possibly, there, there is another school of science fiction writers who are not at Penn. Uh, uh, one of the most notable is Jerry Pornell, but he is the poet laureate of um, that part of NASA and the uh, defense industry uh, who are pushing for Star Wars. And they have an enormous constituency of readers who are the engineers who are designing these programs and growing up to design the ones that, that, that will work if it's at all possible. Uh, the fact that the imaginative literature that's preferred by this group of people goes unread by the entire literary world is a symptom of what I was talking about at the very start of this when I said one of the great freedoms of science fiction is that nobody is listening. Uh, it's not that nobody is listening, but that, mm, that the official censoring establishment isn't listening, and therefore we're free to talk about anything we want. A case in point that's, that's utterly to the side from this, Chip has recently written, his, his last book, is the first uh, fictional account of the AIDS epidemic. Uh, it is set in a um, slightly transposed, not future, but alternative past. I, it's the first work of serious fiction that I know of to deal with AIDS. It precedes the two plays that have come. When his publisher published the book, uh, there is no reference to uh, the fact that he's written a book that uh, that is unique in dealing with the problem that has filled headlines for the last year. Uh, the publishers of science fiction understand that science fiction needs to be considered a trivial literature in order to have the freedom uh, to be serious. Is that a paradox that you would agree with, Chip? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, 
that particular paradox, I think um, it goes so far, but then you know that it, you can only take it so far. Um, it, it is interesting to me in this particular case that in the same that that, that while the both every every periodical from uh, the National Enquirer to Scientific American feels that they can sell more copies by putting AIDS in large letters on the cover, um, my publisher feels that because this is a science fiction book, AIDS best not be mentioned, you know, in, uh, anywhere you know where you can see it, um, and um, this all, of course, grows out of the, the notion that, that science fiction is a, a children's literature and therefore, um, although the National Enquirer and Scientific American can talk about it, we best not talk about it to the under-16 set uh, or what have you. Um, one of the things I do here in, um, in – it kind of sits at the edge of what uh, – a lot of what John uh, was saying here – um, and indeed, uh, it begins to assert itself whenever uh, science fiction tries to officialize itself in, in, what, in, in some sense. Whenever science fiction tries to uh, think what its own relation to the state, to ideology, to any larger institution uh, occurs. And the notion of prediction uh, immediately begins to raise its head as something that somehow justifies science fiction, which I think is always a bad thing. Uh, I don't think science fiction uh, has anything to do with prediction. Um, and I think the more one tries to make it have something to do with prediction, the more one is straighting it, the more one is uh, oppressing it, the more one is misusing it. Um, I think science fiction works as an imaginative tool uh, in, a, in a good way, because not because it predicts what the future is going to be, but because it gives us a range of possible futures that exercise the mind, if you will. Uh, and it, it, its value, its generic value, lies precisely in the fact that it presents a multiplicity of futures. Uh, as soon as we begin to privilege one of these futures and say, well, the, re the reason the whole thing was good is because this particular story in 1932 predicted the growth of... Um, uh, you know, of, of, of automatic washing machines. Uh, we are, are trivializing the whole thing. Uh, and uh, as, as many people have noted, uh, if, the, uh, if you make enough predictions and enough, enough different predictions, one or two of them are probably going to come true. It's a, but it's a scattershot effect. Uh, and to backread this and to say, therefore, the only science fiction that is worthwhile are precisely those that came true, I think, is to miss the point, you know, swimmingly. Uh, and uh, and 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 I don't. Uh, there are very few actual science fiction writers that I know are actually interested in predicting the future proper. You know, in the in the right way. Uh, to the extent they are, they it's it's a kind of game they're playing. And to justify science fiction, uh, because either because it does predict the future or to put it down because it doesn't predict the future, I think is to spectacularly miss the point. What, we have to, what you have to remember about a genre of literature like, like science fiction, uh, it, there are, it, it is an, an enormously serious enterprise, and predicting the future is an enormously serious enterprise, but the majority of science fiction writers from the beginning have used the future in the same way that uh, writers of romance have always used places that you cannot get to for various reasons or that you, the reader, would like to be able to go to but can't as a playground, as a place where things in, of marvel and astonishment can happen, especially things that are magical. Uh, the majority of science fiction writers knew almost nothing about science. They liked, the, they liked spaceships, laser guns, uh, impossible animals for the same reason that the other Beowulf liked them. Uh, they were amazing and astonishing. Uh, there, 
there's a there is a sense in which science fiction comes out of the possibilities of of, uh, of technology, uh, as Jules Verne once imagined it. Anybody who reads a Jules Verne novel today and thinks that Jules Verne, in some sense, predicted the future, it doesn't uh, has an apprehension of the totality of society very different from mine. But uh, in fact, science fiction has often been not predicting the future, not in the business, or not even concerned with predicting the future at all, but in a certain sense parasitic on the future. There is a, tr there is a, uh, a uh, tradition of science fiction that grows out of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. There is another tradition which I would say in large part grows out of Edgar Rice Burroughs, who didn't care and didn't know or care anymore about the future, the nature of the planet Mars than he knew about the African jungle. Uh, and is it, it is in a certain sense Dangerous, I agree with Chip, I would even put it even stronger though. Dangerous to trust these people when they talk about the future. The, in the same way that it is dangerous to talk to, to, to have trusted utopian thinkers of any kind. Um, there is a joke built into utopias, as we know, a cruel and awful joke, and we have to be very careful about them. Um, and whether or not uh, the majority of science fiction has turned on the creation or imagining of technological futures. Uh, they can be dystopian or utopian. Technological futures in themselves are a certain kind of future, which uh, the future may, in the end, have nothing to do with. Um, I, uh, can I can can I move from that to something that 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 I think is can specific? I talk okay. About the future a little bit. Okay. <laughs> uh, there are a million things going through my head, and I'll only say uh, two or three thousand of them before I'm through. <laughs> uh, science fiction, of course, does not predict the future, but science fiction invented the future. <laughs> that is to say, one of the chief myths created by science fiction is the myth of the future the myth of a time which is radically dissimilar from our own, based largely on developments in technology, usually <laughs> in science fiction. There's another sense in which, though uh, science fiction, of course, cannot predict anything, uh, someplace Ursula Le Guin says, future in science fiction is always a metaphor. Uh, that's a little mysterious, but I think true. Uh, but there's another way of looking at it. Though science fiction, and some of the examples that have been adduced here really fit this. Though science fiction cannot, of course, and mostly doesn't try to predict the future, in a way it prophesies the future in a self-fulfilling fashion. That is to say, what science fiction does is to create a grid of perception through which we perceive the future when it comes, right. like the moonshot, uh -huh. for instance. Mm -hmm. We see it in a certain way. Never felt this more strongly than when I lived through the year 1984 recently and thought it was an anticlimax. <laughs> it had already been invented. My blinders had been set up through which I saw it by George Orwell, who may have thought he was just turning 1948 around, but uh, was actually determining the way in which we see that future. Yeah. Science fiction is not an ideological genre. It is a mythological genre. And one of the essentials of mythology is a myth is something which we don't have to ask ourselves whether we believe or disbelieve, but simply accept in a way so that it alters radically 
our way of perceiving the world. The other way to say it is science fiction is whatever show of realism some forms of it have on the surface, fantastic literature or oniric literature, which is to say dream literature. One of the fascinating things about oniric or mythological as opposed to ideological uh, literature is that can be accepted and responded to by people who on the level of conscious ideology are in total disagreement with it. The generation of the 1960s and 70s and going on into the 80s which thought of themselves as opponents of war and pacifists, were opponents of war and pacifists, in their private reading read dearly loved, it turned out, books which celebrated combat, heroism, and war. The Dune books, Star Wars, Star Trek, you can throw Tolkien in for that matter, too. And that's a weird thing. On the other hand, one must remember always that if science fiction literature is, is truly dream literature, mythological literature, it tells us a kind of truth if we know how to read it. The phrase which comes into my mind comes out of Thoreau who says, in dreams we never deceive ourselves. In dreams we never deceive ourselves. I've not worked out all the implications of that. I leave it to you. <laughs> I think I just I'll add a footnote. It's not really my turn again immediately, but do you know the word psychomachy? Yeah. I think that's there is a sense in which the, 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 the mythological struggles of science fiction and Star Wars are uh, a division of the personality into parts that then you let struggle with mm. each other. And, it w and science fiction and its associated fantasy literature allow that to happen in the most straightforward and least mitigated or mediated way than in any other kind of genre of literature. I feel it incumbent to, to respond because <laughs> I, I disagree with some of the remarks made here. Uh, when President Reagan, in the second debate with uh, Walter Mondale, uh, got up there and I think he made this gesture, said, wouldn't it be nice um, that when we develop this shield, this Star Wars, if you will, I think that's the way he referred to it, that we could share it with the Soviets and then we'd all be protected. Um, I would say that President Reagan was um, predicting his idea of the future, that he was seeing the future. That's the word I would use here. And although it might have been an invidious use of it, it was nevertheless quite persuasive. Um, he was doing the same thing uh, that uh, I did when I wrote Antarctica, um, and that I would insist this genre does. Uh, I think we do make moral claims, uh, though we might say that we are speculating um, uh, for entertainment or speculating to work out alternatives. Uh, President, uh, President Reagan was making a science fiction claim. I think uh, I, I don't have any problems with saying that that's a prediction of the future. I don't have any problems with saying that when men okay. predict the future, they can impose it on others. Can I act as a moderator in this case and give another quote about dreams that unites these <laughs> warring camps? In dreams begin responsibilities. Uh, I don't see an essential contradiction. Uh... Of course, it's not all science fiction uh, intends to be predictive. Uh, some science fiction seriously does. Uh, I, I don't think that's the the issue, but but well, I but I think the myth of the future that you were talking about relates to uh, an interesting problem about world survival. 
the, the very phrase world survival is a science fiction concept. Uh, the notion that the entire world could be threatened, uh, I, I think, uh, is, um, aside from um, apocalyptic literature, uh, derives from, from H.G. Wells. And it derives specifically from his vision of the possibilities of warfare uh, that were impending before Europe. And, uh, and even in the uh, teens of, the, of, of this century, he foresaw uh, atomic warfare. Uh, the specter of atomic warfare is something that um, is, is another, what would you say, myth of the future uh, endemic to science fiction, and and that the the technological the, the future of the technological consensus the thought that the future is is somehow going to look high tech and there'll be buttons to press and magical things to happen that's a consensus vision of the future too that 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 the world about us is constantly realizing, but what. I wanted to note and ask why this is, because I don't know, is that science fiction seems to be um, limited, uh, that the, the practitioners of science fiction exist primarily in America, England, Russia, and Japan. Uh, I may be naive in this, but I do not believe that there are uh, many noted writers of the third world, or uh, as Leslie noted once, uh, there are no noted Catholic science fiction writers. Uh, I wonder <laughs> if this is an example of uh, the imperialism of the technocratically successful countries. Uh, I wonder if only if you have a certain level of technology developed in your country and around you does science fiction become imaginable. Uh, does the future become imaginable? Because it seems to me that you could write, for instance, a novel about the future of Ghana. Uh, I know of no such novel, except sometimes and the uh, science... The well, I was going to say that... that um, other science fiction writers of these countries, perceiving that lack, have moved in to fill the gap and written as when, John when has. When third world people write uh, visions like that, they write things like things fall apart, right? Uh, Chinua Achebe, uh, a Nigerian writer, which is traditional society falling apart under the impact of modern technology and Western What, what about the, the palm wine the drinkers? I think that I think oh, that the, the, the yeah. technological uh, imaginings of our societies and, and advanced European societies are replacing possibilities from magic and mythological conflict that that, that older societies, even southern Italian, southern European Catholic societies, still retain. They don't need the uh, to, uh, uh, the support system of imaginary futures, other planets, uh, invented societies to support their uh, the. The storytelling, which it, they, which for them is still rooted in mythologies that continue to survive. Well, yep. Is yep. science fiction then the, the the evangelical literature of uh, the Western worldview? Well, it's it's, it's the secular scriptures. Right, secular scriptures. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody who reads Apocalypse, the Revelations of Saint John, will immediately recognize he's reading a science fiction novel. <laughs> or what? The other way around. It's in, in the same way that. 
Borges says that uh, Kafka's, uh, Kafka created his own predecessors by writing the book that he did. Uh, science fiction now recreates the apocalypse of John as a science fiction novel. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the, uh, the just as a, a passing corollary, there are, there certainly are American Catholic science fiction writers, um, R.A. Lafferty, uh, Gene Wolfe, and Thomas Dish. <laughs> Ex-Catholic. Ex-Catholic. Ex -Catholic. <laughs> Maybe the point is that science fiction can only exist when God is dead. <laughs> and the gods are being reborn. That's right. Uh, uh, in a way, uh, I, I think effectively, you know, whatever, uh, God is officially dead in the Soviet Union, but whatever show we have of maintaining traditional religions in the United States and in England and in Japan too, I would assume, uh, the old gods are, are truly dead. Uh, you know, Zen Buddhism just becomes an export item for American Slavs. And, uh, uh, but, yeah, it's a, when, when, but when God dies, two things happen simultaneously. One, we have to reinvent. Uh, when the traditional gods and God died, what happened was that things formally projected outward into a universe outside of our heads were introjected, right? The supreme triumph of that is, you know, it's all in your head, the shrink tells you. <laughs> but what's, what, what's happening now is the projection outward again of those formerly introjected things, but they can't be projected outward into the old heavens and the own, uh, old hells. They have to be projected into one which at least superficially and nominally seems explicable, explicable in terms of the chief explanation system of our time, science and technology. That's what happens, uh, I, I, I think. But there's another dreadful thing which happens, which explains why so much science fiction, though also entertaining and fun. I, I was amused, John, that after talking about how science fiction uh, uh, was, should be deadly serious, more serious than other literature, you talked inadvertently almost about what fun you had reading 1984. <laughs> fun reading 1984. <laughs> the greatest downer of a book that was ever written. <laughs> But, uh, but, but, but when the gods die, and God dies, despite the desperate effort to reinvent them again, the thing which has slipped in, and you can see it from the very beginnings of science fiction with H.G. Wells, is the notion that if God is dead, man may die too. And if there is a prevailing myth in science fiction which is almost as prevalent and omnipresent as the myth of the future, it is the myth of the end of man. It begins in the time machine. It goes on and on. Man who disappears because of invasion from outer space, man who is displaced by his machines or robots or androids, a man who is displaced by the next evolutionary stage along the life uh, beyond homo the notion of entropy begins to creep in. One more comment, just by the way. Interesting, you used the word specter, talking about the future. Before the invention of science fiction, specters were thought of to come out of the past. Mm -hmm. yeah. The first work of science fiction in this sense must be then the Communist Manifesto, 1848. A specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. Yeah. Right? Yeah, <laughs> 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 you, 
Um, in, in the same way that I worry uh, about people um, getting too hung up on the predictive aspect of science fiction uh, when it tends to move into uh, official uh, in, in official directions, in the same way that when science fiction begins to move in the only term I can think of is literary direction, there is an equal tendency, which I worry about equally as I worry about prediction, to psychologize what goes on in science fiction. And I think this comes from the fact that um, in literary studies, uh, because most of the um, canonical literature is highly mimetic, uh, deals with the real world, there's a tendency to, uh, every time we find something that is uh, eccentric, exotic, um, different from the ordinary, there is a tendency to psychologize it. But I don't think that's the proper way to deal with science fiction. Um, I think science fiction growing up outside the precincts of literature uh, uh, expects a different kind of reading. Uh, if you're going to read it properly. Um, when you come across a phrase like the monopole magnet mining operations in the outer asteroid belt of Delta Cygni, um, what a phrase like this is saying, purely at the denotative level, it is saying that minds will change. They will change their operation, their location, their methodology. Minds are going to change. Uh, and it says this before it says anything about the, the chronic, you know, psychological depths of any character in that mind. It says it before it says anything about uh, the, uh, the, the psychology of the author. And to miss that is to literally misread the sentence. When in a, in a story by Tom, uh, you get a, a sentence like, um, uh, Papa remarried, a man this time, and somewhat more happily. Uh, <laughs> It's not just telling you about Papa's psychological predilections, it's also saying that in this society, the laws have changed. And if you miss the fact that the laws have changed in the society and that you cannot hear that underneath the sentence, you're misreading it as science fiction. Mm. Uh, and to immediately go and to simply dwell on the psycholo psychological aspects, which those of us trained in, in, in the literary precincts have a tendency to do because that's all we do uh, with, literary, with literary text, we miss this dialogic aspect of science fiction as it simply sets up an alternate situation that critiques the social object without going through the subject. Uh, that, uh, that is, I think, one of the most important things about science fiction, and it's one of the reasons I think that literarily trained critics have so much difficulty dealing with it, simply because they don't have to deal with this aspect uh, of, some of, of, of other kinds of text unless they get outside of the, uh, get outside of the, the 20th and, and second half of the 19th century into medieval text where you have to go back to the object in a particular way. If, if I can grab another hold of another part of that elephant, uh, I transpose. I, I agree with Chip, uh, but I then I then I want to sort of add my own preferred explanation. I think that, that science fiction is uh, the most effective class literature, you might say, of our time. Not so one doesn't read it psychologically, but I think one can very intelligently read it um, as. Uh, by, by looking at the way it serves the, uh, the emotional and psychological and uh, social requirements of the particular class to whom it is directed. And that class, Leslie said, uh, uh, young. young white males. Well, I certainly agree about young, uh, I think, but I think most fiction is directed towards the young because fiction is essentially uh, an etiquette book. 
uh, telling people how they should behave in different circumstances. As people grow older, uh, they almost always read less and less fiction uh, because they have found their mm, position in society, they've stabilized their position in society. Uh, and the, the uh, fiction they do read tends to be uh, repeating certain emotional patterns such as women's romances. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a fiction that uh, helps people. For instance, the Gothic helps a, a woman stuck in a dull marriage to uh, agree that the uh, second uninteresting man is a better proposition <laughs> than the one, the dark stranger. Um, science fiction appeals to the young because, uh, because of just what Chip said, uh, because it, it says that minds must change. This mind, yours, the readers, uh, you are, as it were, changing your mind by reading it. And the direction of change, of course, is self-improvement. One of the things that science fiction is, it's in a literature of self-help and morale boosting. All the Superman fantasies are an aspect of that. You, you can believe, you know, sort of, if, if, if you're worried about going out and, and having an employment interview, it helps to look at Clark Kent. <laughs> You know, and do otherwise. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait a minute. If you're saying if you're saying that, that these are forming role models, I think Leslie would say that that's why they were forbidden. They were such bad role models. These these heroic world no. leaders, no, they're 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 role models for for lower class kids who want to grow up to be upper class. It, yeah, it, but it's they, the, li it's the literature but of upward so mobility and of people who want to join the meritocracy. Yeah, I'm not sure. That may, that may be so, but in that case, the fantasies projected, at least when I was reading Good. science fiction and when I, when I was one of those kids, was not uh, the kind of thing that, my, that, that the meritocracy would have agreed I should be reading. They, 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 would, not, they would not have encouraged the my The establishment wouldn't have agreed, it, agreed with it because the establishment in its nature uh, is exclusionary. That's what ghettos are about. You know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're the walls that are, are, are drawn, uh, you know, sort of... I mean, who builds the walls of the ghetto? God, I, I, Us or them? Tom, I don't know whether you're meaning to say this, but you're saying that the next ruling class, the yuppies were being prepared by reading science fiction <laughs> to replace the old meritocracy? They were not Maybe so. It's a terrifying notion. Clark Kent turning into Superman no. is the model for that. <laughs> <laughs> Superman turning into Clark Kent is more the model. A corollary of it is, is that the literature, what mainstream literature, that is to say the social realist novel describing um, uh, middle class life uh, in a, in a nor as, as being normative and interesting is a literature that's, that's devoted to the status quo and to preserving uh, class lines where they are now and uh, therefore for, for the writers and critics of that class science fiction is necessarily however intelligently it might be written, must nevertheless be marketed as, um, as kid stuff and as unrespectable uh, because that's how the establishment defends itself. I don't disagree. I just feel that, uh, that uh, the science fiction is not as... Uh, let me put it this way. I, this is a literature that... Um, that cuts across uh, uh, power lines. It doesn't, uh, in the hands of the young, it's one thing. I wanted to speak to the anecdote of Wells. Uh, Leslie brought up uh, Wells' um, destruction of the world. 
uh, and to counter Tom's anecdote with an anecdote that uh, I know from Wells's biography, uh, he visited Teddy Roosevelt in 1906 at the White House. Now, Teddy Roosevelt, we know, is our president who, who most uh, embraced uh, the future of technology. He, he, he made sure that uh, he, he flew in an airplane. He had a motion picture made of himself chopping down a tree. He was happy with the machine gun. He tested out rifles. He was eager to uh, show the white fleet. Um, and yet uh, he told Wells at the White House, they had lunch, he said, uh, this book, and he was referring to the time machine, this book is the, the greatest book I have ever read. I have read it and read it and read it. I love this book. And Wells was quite taken aback because he'd, he'd, he'd approached uh, Roosevelt as some sort of, uh, uh, we would call him a fascist bumpkin. Now, Wells didn't use those terminologies. Um, and uh, he, he said, well, thank you very much, Mr. President. And um, they, were, they were escorted out to the porch of the White House, you know, the shabby backside, the uh, front side of the White House that nobody ever pictures. They show us the backside. Um, and uh, Wells grabbed him and, and said, uh, you know, something's been worrying me. So all of a sudden, Wells pulled a lawn chair over and propped down behind it, like at a redoubt, and uh, made pretend that he had a weapon in his hand, and he was pointing it out on the lawn. And he said that, that business about the Morlocks, you know, when the world is going to end and the, the Morlocks and these, these silly little people who don't do anything but eat fruit, he said, if, if, and if that's the way, if that's the way it's really going to end, and I, and I think it will, I, I want to tell you right now, and then he made pretend that he was shooting a Morlock out on the White House lawn. <laughs> I want to tell you right now, it was still worth it. <laughs> and Wells, not being an ironic chronicler, <laughs> reports this <laughs> casually. Uh, and, and at the same time, he's willing to tell us when he visits Lenin in 1920. He visits him at the Kremlin. And as I, as I told him last night, he, he, the picture of Lenin is that he'd, he'd propped himself up in one of those Tsarist chairs that was built for giants that never lived, so that any human being sitting down in it would feel like a child. And indeed, Lenin was not a large man. So as he sat there, his legs did not reach the floor. They dangled, just as if he was in a high chair. And Lenin is pounding the table, telling Wells how he's read his books and enjoyed them all. Wells, at this point, was so far into his self-important career, he did not see the connection at all between Teddy Roosevelt in 1906 and, and Lenin in 1920. And as Leslie quite properly uh, reminded me last night, uh, Wells, uh, I mean, Lenin was always making science fiction declarations, the most prominent you can see anywhere in the Soviet Union. I think the, the exact quote is, electrification plus Soviet power equals socialism. Well, Wells assured, I mean, uh, Lenin assured Wells that he was so certain because he'd read Wells that the future was. The future was exactly as he'd said, a scientific utopia. And Wells was a little staggered and very worried because he realized that this man was prosaic and had, had misread his books as far as Wells was concerned and had a moral vision that was corrupt. Now, I would make the very large claim that so far from preaching to the young exclusively, Science fiction is also um, uh, wrapped up in the uh, hands of the men who have made the 20th century what it is. And when I, when I mentioned the anecdote about President Reagan standing there imagining this, uh, this, uh, this uh, future when we will have a shield over this country and we can give it to the Soviet Union, why I was upset by that was not because of the technology of Star Wars and not Jerry Pornell and all of that. It's just because I felt that it was a failure of the imagination on his part 
just as Wells felt Lenin's failure of the imagination when he pounded out Soviet power and electrification, and when he felt Teddy Roosevelt's failure of the imagination to pretend that he was shooting a wild animal and to make some claim that the future, that the future though it would end in this nonsense, was still worth it to Teddy Roosevelt. So, so uh, that, that is the... That's I think they were making a simpler mistake, though. They were mistaking uh, literature for reality. It's a commonplace mistake you can make in, you can make in any circumstances. So think, thinking that the fairy tales told you in books, from Emma Bovary to, uh, to uh, uh, Nova, do are you think, true. Do you think or have, or have, an, have a one-on-one -on -one relationship to, uh, to reality. Yeah, I, 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 saw, I thought of that recently, you know, when they did that day after movie, which was discussed mm -hmm. solemnly on television as if it were an event instead of a futurist <laughs> fantasy, which didn't happen. <laughs> the, the, it's interesting, of course, that, that uh, all of these images, the image of the end of the time machine, uh, this notion of the end of, th of the, the end of everything has a whole 19th century history. It's the end. It's the image at the end of the ring cycle, uh, where everything is wiped out, and and you find lots of people playing with it all throughout the 19th century. In fact, by the time you get to the beginning of the 20th century, it's, it's almost as though people have almost grown accustomed to this image, so that uh, Lenin and Teddy Roosevelt are all happy with it uh, in a sunny way. It, it no longer it no longer disturbs um, s science fiction proper as something that I see as, as something that gets itself started uh, after all of this. Uh, I, 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 for me, uh, Wells is not really science fiction. Uh, uh, the, for me, the science, science fiction starts with the name science fiction in around 1926 or 1929. Uh, but science fiction proper, that science fiction that starts in the pulps and grows up uh, in, the, 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 in, the, in this extra literary tradition, uh, certainly has one or two radical images, if not five, six, or seven, that it constantly is promulgating, and I think they're very important. Uh, science fiction is the only place that a teenager today in the United States of America can go to again and again to be presented wi with an image of a country or a nation or some society that is other than the United States, larger than the United States, and more powerful than it. Uh, the, uh, the, the traditional way to read these, and I think it's, it's very close to the kind of psychologization that I was talking about before, uh, is to say, well, this is somehow a metaphor for the United States in some way. Uh, but I don't think this is the way uh, your demotic 14, 15-year-old reader reads it. I think what it does is it, it, it leaves open the possibility that there is something else, there is something other. Uh, there are a whole host of critical images that run through science fiction, and we tend to, we, we get so used to them, we forget that they that they are they function in a critical capacity. Uh, the whole notion of a faster than light drive, which you find in in practically one out of three science fiction stories, is a, a very specific way of reminding the reader uh, that. The, in the same way that the Einsteinian model of the universe challenged the Newtonian model, that the Einsteinian model itself may eventually be challenged. Uh, and it's a very conscientious way of doing it. And, it's, and, and the more, science, more scientifically oriented the writer, the more specifically this image is used in its critical capacity. To say that eventually this upper notion of the speed of light as the, the final velocity may someday have to be challenged in some particular way. We don't know how, we don't know the mathematics of it, but just as the older model was challenged by this newer one, the newer one may someday have to be challenged. And there are all sorts of critical images that run through the, the, the gallery. Do you think people really care about um, uh, 
Einstein's formulations. I, I mean, isn't it simply the case that, that an intelligent consideration of the problem of, of flight to other stars requires faster than light speeds because logically uh, you can't have a story happen in a human lifetime uh, sensibly. So I, I, don't, I don't think the motivation is to, is to, to challenge uh, the laws of physics, but it, it was simply an aesthetic problem that was um, uh, confronted by people as they saw that, that, that their stories couldn't be told unless they made an excuse. I mean, because... I think there's... It, a, I think I, there's I, it's funny. Uh, let, let me just say something, uh, to say a third way of reading that. Whenever I read uh, about faster-than-light travel or time travel or any other rubber science and science fiction novels, uh, uh, that to me is a way of saying once upon a time, mm -hmm. or let's make believe. Yeah. Yes, I right. The, I, I think the fun, I think yeah. the fun, fun part of it is, though, or the yeah. interesting part is what Chip is saying is that the tropes of science fiction have to do always with science, with, with problems which, in fact, are genuine problems in science. Is there? We know there is not uh, heaven uh, up above the earth and hell in the center of the earth and a purgatory and a seven-story mountain on the other side of Jerusalem. But we don't know whether there is an upper, whether there is a, a speed of uh, speed beyond the speed of light, and the, the aesthetic choices and problems of science fiction are turn very largely on these matters. There's there's very little science fiction about quantum mechanics because people don't imagine quantum mechanics impinging upon their daily life. I mean, if if science fiction writers were seriously concerned with with cosmological and uh, in matters of of mm, the boundaries of physics as they exist now, they would be concerned uh, with that side of physics, but they're not. Well, I think... Well, there are two, two laws of physics which possess the imagination strongly enough to breed myths or entropy. Mm -hmm. And the limitations, so-called limitations on the speed of light. Uh, the notion of mass of something becoming infinitely great. And, uh, you know, it, it, that you can feel and at a place where you read fiction. <laughs> Genetics right. is producing Genetics a lot of science fiction. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and genetics. Yeah, although, of course, what's allowed us to feel it at the place where we read fiction is the fact that there have been so many fictive treatments of it. Uh, I think that feeling is constituted itself of, of, of a, a whole bunch of fictions that we've been exposed to. He said sounding rather Gallic in this <laughs> terminology. Um, it's uh, an hour left. I don't suppose it's too soon to uh, suggest that people who want to come up to the microphone. They're, they're recording this so that they've asked that, uh, that people who have a question uh, to pose, uh, anyone here, uh, should come up to the microphone, identify themselves, and pose the question. Uh, you're all welcome to do so uh, at any point along the way at this program. Yes? Oh, thank you. My name is Ethelbert Miller from Washington, D.C., and I was fascinated by this morning's discussion, and particularly uh, reference to the shortage of science fiction writers in the third world. I was wondering if we could elaborate on that just a little bit more. Um, I was wondering whether that is a result of a lack of access of science fiction books, whether it's a result of the colonial educational system, um, whether one has makes a link between the development of a particular society and the presence of science fiction as a genre, whether it's that type of relationship, or whether it also reflects the publishing industry. And also, um, in terms of what um, Chip Delaney had mentioned, how we sometimes define science fiction. I look, for example, within Afro-American literature, and even people like Ishmael Reed has made this statement, that Blacks Know More by George Schuyler, he saw as science fiction. 
Um, we've had things such as um, uh, some short stories by Mary Baraka, which some people felt was science fiction. So I guess the definition might also be important. And also what sometimes happens to black writers is that their work gets classified as black mm -hmm. regardless of what the yeah, subject matter right. is about. Mm -hmm. Ishmael Reed has certainly written science fiction. Yes. Yeah, well, he quite deliberately and self-consciously, right? Yes. But I think we also, I personally would like to in start with a footnote that I don't know that they're not writing in third world countries. That's I don't know the literature of those countries well enough to say. It, that, that whatever of science fiction they write does not appear prominently in English. That's all I know personally about it. What I would suppose is, is that if a third world science fiction does exist, uh, people who are aware of it should be bringing it to the attention of American publishers because it is uh, innately interesting. Uh, and, and that if third world writers aren't writing science fiction, they should consider it because they know their futures and uh, it, it, the global village is becoming so small that, that people are aware of, I, I mean, a science fiction novel about the future of Iran, for instance, is something that would find a large readership in this country because people are aware of the drama of the rest of the world now. And, um, but, it's, but the drama that, that people are interested in is the drama of the future. You know, the, 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 uh, it's, it's like one wants to know what will be the next headline. It's, it's as though the, the, the newspapers were a serial to be continued tomorrow and science fiction is a way of uh, you know, reading the next installment ahead of time. Uh, uh, my, my name is Alice Turner, and um, with regards to the third world, I certainly consider South and Central America as part of the third world. And I'm rather astonished that none of you have made reference to an extremely lively and often critically acclaimed literature of surrealism, or sometimes called magical realism, a fabulism that's coming out of these countries, which has a great deal to do with some of the ways that some of you write which is perhaps the freshest kind of writing that is right now, that we're all reading with astonishment. And um, how can you ignore this? They're all Catholics, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've just been uh, reading a book, a study of such writers in terms of the way in which they use indigenous mythology. Uh, and I think that's one of the major differences, is that uh, much of that uh, South American magical realism, or whatever you want to call it, is based on still living myths mm -hmm. native to the countries, and especially to the Indian peoples yeah. uh, of, of, of those countries. Uh, <coughs> it, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating parallel development, but it's a little different from the, from the development. I think that, that two things have to be present before science fiction can develop. I, I know it doesn't exist in Anglophone African literature, because I know a lot about uh, Anglophone African literature, so it happens. Uh, it's not. One, one of the functions of science fiction in our world, in the Western world, was to preserve the tradition of tell me a story after storytellers had disappeared. In countries where storytelling is still alive, I think literature develops in a different way. Or right. to go just to throw out a title, uh, I know, I, I gather that Marcial Souza's uh, next novel uh, that is going to appear here, uh, he's the author of um, 
Chopra of the Amazon and Mad Maria uh, is going to be, or at least he described it to me when we flew back from Toronto on the plane a couple of months ago, uh, as science fiction. Uh, and at least he thinks of it as science fiction. So, um, so let's start. Yeah, so it's sure. Uh, my name is Istvan Cicciari Ronai, writers in exile. I think uh, we left out uh, uh, some important uh, science fiction writers. Many, many. Yes, but one uh, which is not uh, belonging to a high technological society and not to a quasi uh, great power and not to the third world either. But there is Poland and Lamb, okay. and uh, he is, uh, in addition, uh, coming from a Catholic uh, country and living now in another Catholic country, which is not an important thing, but I think it is that he is not from a, a quasi great power, unfortunately. Well, he's from, he's, he's from Galicia, which has a very ambiguous status between <laughs> Poland and Russia, as you know. His, his hometown, which I believe is Lvov, Lemberg, is in Russia now. And uh, he comes out, out of the Russian, I think I'm coming out of the Russian Empire, yes? Yeah. Yeah. Besides, he's a Jew, yes? I don't know. He's, he's ought the one to be film on which this panel if he were here. One of the things I, uh, that, that, that always intrigued me about Lem's science fiction is that, that some of his early works are, are indubitably science fiction, such as Solaris, The Invincibles. Uh, yet uh, it intrigues me that as, his, as he moves on, he moves into something that is much closer to, to fable uh, and, and moves away from that, that, that feeling that, uh, of, of the, the texture of reality in, 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 in the early works is, is indubitably science fictional. In the later works, uh, it's almost as though he is using some of the science fictional conventions but moves closer to something that like uh, Calvino or indeed Borges. Um, but I, I throw that out for what it's, uh, what it's worth. Sure. Uh, my name is Frank Conroy. Um, you also didn't mention Walter Miller, who seems to me to be uh, really closer to the, to the American tradition, anyway. A marvelous but writer. The, yeah. the, uh, Happy to have him here. <laughs> I wonder if, if and I, I hope this doesn't sound like a hostile question, if science fiction isn't really in a decadent period, if it isn't really over in a, in a certain sense. I mean, magic realism, uh, 100 years of solitude where people live to be 200 years old, people fly up into the air, Erendira the beautiful ascends because she's so beautiful. Uh, in a certain sense, all of science fiction techniques have been co-opted by literary writers. And I was surprised to hear, you know, the only thing that I can sense that you all agree about is that science fiction is children's literature. And maybe it must remain children's literature because because there's nothing left now, because it's been tied to materialism from the beginning and sort of resolutely stays with materialism and, you and technology. And that, that all literature that's tied to materialism is children's literature? No, but science fiction is. As, as an adult enterprise, it's tied to materialism. So if you wanted to become uh, an... Uh, it seems to me strongest there. That's what the kids right. like. That's what I liked as a kid. When you're a kid, you're weak. And science fiction is very powerful because it makes you powerful in your imagination. Okay. Makes everything powerful. Look, at the end of the 19th century, in the Victorian period, fantasy was ghettoized in two ways. It was sent into the nursery on the one hand, sign put on it for children only, and it was confined to the lower classes for the other. Let the poor, half-educated, working-class slobs uh, read it. Science fiction is benefited by the fact that it came out of the nursery and it came out of those 
of literate writers, and I would say, thank God science fiction is still children's literature, defining what I mean by children's literature as being books which can also be read by children, which don't separate us from our juvenile experience, but fulfill it, complete I it. I should have gone a little bit further and talked about escapism. Uh, his, if, if I may. Uh, finally drop. Uh, uh, can, can, can I give you my favorite quotation, which comes from C.S. Lewis? The only person to whom escape is a bad word is a jailer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yesterday at the panel for Hispanic literature, uh, a woman whose name I didn't catch because I entered late was testifying to her own experience in becoming published uh, as a Puerto Rican writer. Uh, all of her novels were published as young adult novels. She said they weren't written that way, but it was only because uh, but only they could only be published as young adult novels uh, because she felt uh, she was Hispanic and she pointed out that uh, and, and specifically Puerto Rican uh, that one of the qualities that grown-ups possess is that they can vote Puerto Ricans can't vote uh, as to the uh, to children's literature uh, I feel that science fiction has, uh, in the last 20 years, developed into a three-tier system uh, that resembles that of the world at large. There's a highbrow science fiction, a middlebrow science fiction, which commands the bestseller list, and then the uh, at the there, there's a lowbrow science fiction, which has uh, possibly less vitality than it used to when all entry-level jobs in science fiction were... Um, Schlock level. Yeah. And, and so therefore, we have people like Walter Miller and uh, Theodore Sturgeon writing magnificent work, uh, supposedly uh, within the lowbrow realm, because there were no discriminations at that time. It was all science fiction. Uh, and nowadays, we're in the decadent period when science fiction indeed is stratified like the rest of literature. Uh, but decadent? I don't know. I, I, I thought that was a silly book uh, when the man who, was it Gilman, right? Uh, to me, decadence is um, like my other favorite slur, and the one that I've incurred most often personally, nihilist. Uh, I've often been a nihilist, and... Uh, uh, it's not a formal philosophy that I'm aware of being taught in schools. Uh, I mean, I've never heard anybody actually declare him, except Iago in, in Verdi, uh, to uh, be a conscious nihilist. Uh, basically, <laughs> it's like saying you don't belong, get back inside the ghetto. Uh, no, I don't agree with you. We're not in a decadent period. Uh, there, you know, you you may have encountered a few bad tastes reading books uh, selected at random, but I could tell you twenty books that are written within the last ten years uh, that that are the highest accomplishment the field's ever offered. You also have to read some of the look at some of the some of the books that are reaching popularity by drawing. If you if if part of the problem is that that the, that the uh, whatever makes science fiction special is co-opted or drawn away or used up by other kinds of writers, the only thing all you have to do is look at some of the books which did well by drawing on those things, on those uh, specialnesses for themselves and how 
what bad books they are. I, uh, I think of uh, Cecilia Holland's enormous science fiction novel, or uh, the one we, were, we mentioned, uh, For the Time Being, not, that's not the Time and Again, and again. Mm -hmm. a, a, a very poor and uh, time travel novel. Or Robbie McCauley's Adventures in the Field, or I, I, I regret to say, uh, I find that to be the case with Doris Lessing's Doris immense. Doris Lessing, the same, exactly. <laughs> Using up or uh, trying to use up tropes of science fiction that science fiction writers can look at and say, she doesn't know how let's to play let, let, let's play checkers, not Let's chess. mention favorably one name of somebody who exploits science fiction tropes. Pynchon. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. they, they are being used and they are available yeah. for anybody to use, but I, I don't agree that they're not being used, they're not being un universally used as well as those who would still remain nameably in the ghetto are using them. Yeah. I, I think one has to say, I, uh, possibly, um, it is, is, it is endemic on, of, uh, to being on the other side of 40 uh, to think that perhaps what, what one's field has become decadent. <laughs> uh, and uh, certainly on odd <coughs> Thursdays, I look, at the, I look at the splurge of, of fantasy, mm. of, of, of brainless fantasy that is, that is edging a lot of science fiction off of the, sh the shelf. And I, I say, if not exactly decadent, I, I, I make a sigh that is more <laughs> has the same semantic uh, you know, uh, equivalent. Uh, nevertheless, uh, there are writers uh, who have started publishing publishing within the last uh, five and certainly ten years uh, who have made the field interesting to read again. Uh, William Gibson, um, uh, uh, what's the guy's name, the three names, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, there, are, there are a number. Octavia that, that you, Butler. Octavia Butler, yeah. Uh, so that there are a number of writers who, uh, what of course happens is that because these writers are just starting in the field, they are not necessarily the writers that those of us who at one point read a lot of science fiction and then fell away from it are likely to know because they're the writers who've started in the last five or ten years. There's such an immense bulk, it remains to be said, of science fiction produced nowadays that the, the law of averages holds most of it is trash. Right. Right. Lamb, yes. Lamb in his book Microworlds on the subject of science fiction complained that there were no significant uh, science fiction writers. Uh, he was very dismayed by this. The only ones that he could uh, see to have any value uh, were Verne, Wells, Stapleton, and himself. Now, <laughs> every, every writer probably has a pantheon as small as that in his secret heart. Uh, Lem was candid enough to reveal his. Um, but, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't resist getting that one in. Uh, please. My name, is, my name is Meredith Tack. One of the things that has interested me about science fiction is the way so much of it, including stuff which is not on the surface like that at all, um, is code for gender relations in very interesting ways. Take Solaris, for instance, which is a wonderful book. And among other things, to me at least, in my reading, a picture of male bafflement before <laughs> this vast, seductive, soft entity referred to as she. <laughs> and when you t talk about 12-year-old boys being the main readers, you think about their mother. Uh, this has not been discussed so far very much, and I think it's changing because of the entry in, in my lifetime is, uh, uh, by so many women into the field. And I'd like the panel to discuss there are always the women impact. In the field. Well, more and more powerful yeah. women. I, I think myself that it's a symptom of what I said before that that, that science fiction um, is a literature that is innately related to upward mobility. As soon as feminism uh, became a movement in this country, 
uh, feminists moved into writing science fiction uh, by just a natural tropism. And uh, within 10 years, uh, there was a bookshelf full of feminist science fiction. And some and of it extraordinarily good. And this is true at all the tier levels uh, that I spoke of. Uh, there, there's a feminist science fiction for literary intellectuals by Ursula Le Guin and Joanna Rush, but, but there, there's also uh, feminist trash for people <laughs> who like to read trash, but they still want that moral boost that a certain kind of power, I mean, a lot of early science fiction was power fantasies for young male adolescents. There are now power fantasies for young female adolescents, and I think it's wonderful that science fiction should supply those needs. I, th I, th I think an interesting point that should be made is if you really think that science fiction began, as many critics of science fiction, including Brian Aldiss and me, do, with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, it was a woman who began the genre. <laughs> yeah. I also think that nothing, nothing, nothing shows the, uh, one of the inherent problems of science fiction better than, than that change in gender roles. Uh, science fiction becomes outdated faster than any other kind of book. It's, uh, you never want to read a mystery novel again because you know who did it. You, ne you almost rarely want, you rarely want to read a science fiction novel again because the futures that are predicted have gone by. If you read old science fiction and the picture of male-female relations that are in science fiction from the 50s uh, are grotesque and cannot project into the future, cannot, did not imagine and could not imagine the change in relations, exactly what Chip was saying about how minds change. But they, couldn't, they, can't they can predict that minds will change, but not what specific changes will take place. And they could not and did not imagine that one, or at least not very well, not to my knowledge. I don't know whether I should bring up the fact that when, in my example, I was talking about minds, M-I-N-E-S, <laughs> not M-I-N-D. Uh, oh. But <laughs> perhaps I was talking too quickly. Uh, the one thing I would just like to say, if this were a science fiction convention, for instance, and there were... Uh, six panels on various aspects of science fiction. Probably two of them would be on feminist as, uh, feminist themes in science fiction because that's been the uh, that's been the, the the basic schema of just about uh, every science fiction convention, and there are over seventy of them a year in the United <laughs> States alone uh, that I have been to in the last three or four years, if not six or seven. <laughs> yes. Yes. My name is Annette Michelson. Um, I came to the reading of science fiction um, through the science fiction film. Uh, which interested me first, and uh, partly as a result of uh, of that, I, I have come to read a fair amount of science fiction in the last few years. And um, I have some questions, actually two, perhaps three, which I will not ask all of you to address. They are addressed to anyone who wants to answer them, but since I know best the work of Fiedler, Dish, and Delaney, I will address my questions primarily to you. Um, the first of them has to do with the fact that um, film, cinema, was an object of science fiction um, from at least the 19th century. And um, it has for some time now interested me that one of the founding texts of the genre, which is Le Futur of Didier de Villadon, um, constructs the cinema of the future as well as the woman of the future. And I think those two um, kind of objects of desire are not without relation um, in uh, science fiction generally. Therefore, one of the questions I would like to address to you is whether or not you as observers and writers uh, of uh, science fiction um, have felt in some way 
a um, reciprocity between cinematic and literary. I think we can safely say that modern literature is, has been, to a large extent, inflected by our experience of the cinema um, in ways which writers, I think, have uh, already articulated. And I would be interested to know whether that seems to be true for you um, as critics and writers of science fiction, whether, in fact, not only the scientific imagination, but the cinematic power of imaging has, in some way, inflected the techniques and strategies of uh, the writing of science fiction. Secondly, another question. One more. Um, I am very interested not so much in, not only in science fiction or in science fiction film, but I'm interested in science slash fiction slash film. That is, I'm interested in the relations amongst these three separate components. I'm interested in, and you touched um, in your previous discussion upon something that interests me very much. What is the role of science in science fiction? And what would be the role of science in science fiction film? What science gets into science fiction? How does it get there? And how, in fact, does it count for the writer? And while although some of you said, uh, well, uh, time travel or the, uh, the, the drive uh, faster than the speed of light functions in this way or that for them, I don't think you talked about your personal um, experience with the scientific. That is, if you could perhaps tell us a little bit um, as writers of science fiction, how science works for you. Well, those are the two questions. Yeah, why don't you as master of the <laughs> feast? Uh, okay, okay. I, I was <laughs> sort of eager to, uh, uh, b because uh, the the first question. Uh, allows me to talk about something I've just written, and there's no uh, dearer pleasure. <laughs> uh, I did a story called Hard Work uh, lately. It's the last science fiction novella that I've done of, of any length, and, and also there's a spillover from that novella that I'm certain is going to uh, generate maybe sort of several linked stories. Uh, I, I think that... that um, I, I'm totally a member of, of the movie generation. I, I know that that uh, my mind and being and soul have been formed in the movies. Uh, and uh, I'm sort of happy that that's so. I, I mean, I, I other people describe this as, as somehow a pernicious influence, and I'm sure in many ways it is, uh, but, but they usually neglect to show the respects in which it, it can be a a very uh, positive thing. Uh, I guess what I said about Clark Kent and Superman, I mean, uh, cinema provides us with, with role models, and uh, I don't know, I think it usually provides pretty good ones. I, I, I mean, I continue to go to movies and think, boy, wasn't that the right thing to do? I mean, when you have that, that moment when the hero or heroine sort of stands up for, for liberty or justice or truth or any of those good things, and you're sitting there and you, and you feel with force that this is the right thing to do. It, to me, this is the, the morale system of our culture, much more than religion, I, in, in terms of providing viable, uh, believable, I, I mean, I, I sort of want to be James Stewart, and I want to be Cary Grant, and I want to be Paul Newman, and 
uh, I know that I'll never be some of them, but uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I still buy the right clothes that will help me do that, and <laughs> you know, and 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 I try and behave well. Anyhow, so I did a science fiction story in which the whole world has become. Um, in, in which the entire morale system of the world is based upon total identification with uh, film figures through the entire history of the cinema, and so that the the um, the the young hero at the start of the story, who's been stuck in a dead end job for twenty or thirty years, uh, this is a future in which people live long lifetimes, uh, so he's still young. Uh, his name is Gabby Hayes, and. You know, that's where he is. But he suddenly, uh, the, the personnel office informs him that he is being promoted to management level, and, and so he decides, one, he's, he's going to look younger, and two, you know, sort of enough of Gabby Hayes, he becomes Sal Minio. <laughs> and this is a story about the problems of the transformation from Gabby Hayes to Sal Minio. You know, I had such fun with that. But in a way, it was also a serious story. I mean, I'm talking about, I'm creating a symbolic structure that humorously, I hope, um, mirrors the question of what do movies mean to us? Well, my, so that's my answer. Uh, I, I think it's a fascinating subject, and, and I'm not done writing about it yet. Uh, I think historically uh, <coughs> it's interesting that the relation between science fiction as text and science fiction in film with only one or two or possibly three exceptions has been largely antagonistic. Uh, there, uh, something happens in the film that that whole uh, critical aspect of science fiction as text, which I think is a very important part of it. I think science fiction is, uh, when you read it in books, uh, is always trying in some way to establish a dialogue with the world. As soon as you get it on celluloid, uh, immediately that whole critical thing dies somewhere. Uh, so that um, although the images come through, the, the, um, the, that basic sort of critical thing gets lost, the exceptions are interesting. Uh, the exceptions that immediately come to mind are, are the George Pal Destination Moon, which the science fiction community kind of took to itself as soon as it uh, was made. Um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a more, um, in a more, in a low, lower level, uh, the Ray Bradbury authored it came from outer space, uh, which is interesting because there's almost no science in the film. It's, it's the science is all kind of off stage. Everything is, is very ordinary. The images are very ordinary, uh, and the other one, of course, was 2001, uh, which again the science fiction community, uh, you know, sort of made its own within minutes. Uh, or at least some of one one part of the yeah, science fiction it community. It. Yeah, it, it, it divided us very quickly, yeah. but it was it was our object to wrangle over in a way that uh, I can't think of any other science fiction films that have really done that. Um, the kind of antagonism that the that that I, that exists between science fiction as text and science fiction as film, I think, is is best um, typified by uh, and something that was said, um, again, within days of um, the opening of Star Wars. Uh, and it, was, it, it came up spontaneously all over the field that the reason Star Wars was not a science fiction film but a fantasy film was mainly because of the sounds of the spaceships uh, going across empty space. Uh, and as, uh, this is what makes it a fantasy more than anything else. And in and the... Um, it's a metaphor. 
<laughs> uh, well, you, uh, the, and the other thing about that is that the, the I talk about I talked before about uh, the fa faster than light drives be in in written science fiction having this kind of critical thrust toward the philosophy of science, which Leslie says they don't really have. Uh, nevertheless, one of the reasons that the faster than light drive in Star Wars doesn't have that critical thrust because in a universe where sound can travel across empty space, you just can't maintain that critical <laughs> thrust with a, with a faster than light drive. It becomes part of a fantasy and so that the whole superstructure that supports this kind of thing breaks down. Well, isn't that partly because you don't have to describe it in the movies? You don't have a page in which to say, the way they got from planet X to planet Y was by their hyper, which worked in such and such a fashion. No, you I don't think need to do it that. All you do is go, well, I think it's partially. I think I think it's partially that, but it, but but it's because s so many of the images um, violate what is known to be known. Uh, I just saw uh, a film called Enemy Mine, based on a that started off based on a a real science fiction story as written, and there's a whole sequence that simply destroys all of the. Um, you know, all, all of the scientific superstructure, uh, this, the planet where these two characters, a human being and an alien, end up is from time to time peppered by meteors, and they run around looking for little shells to put over their heads to hold off the meteors. <laughs> and the whole, you know, and when you think of all the other things they could possibly have done, I mean, they could have had rocks open up out of their tops and spew little living, you know, things, and it would have been the same thing. It would have been so much easier to come up with something um, that didn't contradict the obvious, um, <laughs> it, that it might, it, it, uh, but yet they do this, and the whole thing kind of breaks down at that point. Yeah, yeah let me. Uh, moment, sir, question: are, are you not the man who, who said that the science fiction writers are going to supersede or replace the Einsteinian theory? I doubt it. No, that was half listening to yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. I oh, think no. that you heard that. No, I, I just, I just simply, I think what you're, what, what you mean is that, that the. Uh, at one point I said that uh, that a faster than light drives implies that someday the Einsteinian model may be overcome in the same way that the Newtonian model. I didn't say that science fiction writers were <laughs> certainly going to do it, no. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to respond to your question. I, I, in a way, uh, writers invented the movies before technology did. Uh, Scott's favorite epithet for himself was the master of motion. <laughs> he liked to think he could keep people hithering and thithering on the lee, which has only got to be possible with the development of various cinematic uh, techniques. My own mind is full of the cinema, uh, even though I'm older than... Uh, that's great. <laughs> I don't want to start the world on fire. I just want to start flaming my microphone. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Rock stars do it. <laughs> uh, I guess I'm the first generation that has grown up having seen more movies than I've read books, so I've read a hell of a lot of books. And uh, the earliest memory of my life is Lillian Gish, I guess it was, and The White Sister, right? uh, going way back to the beginnings of cinema. All my life long, what I wanted, I wanted to be in cinema. Right? It was my other world that I wanted to penetrate into, my alternative universe. And I finally made it twice over. I went to see a movie, I can never remember what it was called, with Natasha Kinski of all things in it. And uh, Nureyev. Uh, yeah, and uh, it opens with a professor writing on the board, Leslie Fiedler, Love and Death in the American Novel. <laughs> and then the beautiful Nastasia leaves the class with a copy of Love and Death in the American Novel under her arm. <laughs> 
Beyond this, I thought nothing was possible, except <laughs> I finally ended up uh, late in life acting in a, in a film coup. But uh, the relation between films and science fiction seems to me a very troubled one. Uh, in addition to all the things that Chip said, with most of which I agree, there's something, the movies have come to science fiction, though they, movies were into science fiction earlier, there's a sense always of something provincial and belated about the way in which film limps after tropes, metaphors, themes, and so forth that in the science fiction community among the, you know, the hardcore experts at least seem totally exhausted. I, I wanted to tell the story. I, I talked to Chip. I had an interview with Chip right after Star Wars opened uh, at his apartment, and um, it was the first time we met. And I asked him a couple of questions, uh, one of which was, do you think this will do anything for science fiction? And Chip said, well, maybe they'll make a few more movies, maybe they'll buy a few more books. And then he made the, uh, the, the observation that um, I wanted to feature in the piece, but it just didn't work out because it wasn't a political piece, it was a isn't Star Wars wonderful piece, that... Um, what, I don't know if you remember this, Chip, that one of the things oh, that struck you most about Star Wars was that there were no black people in, in the future. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, of course, that, that, that was sort of, sort of ended the interview for me because it was so absolutely true and I'd missed it. Uh, and um, that lead, led me to think what there wasn't in Star Wars and sure. that uh, how the cinema, how that, the making of that movie had failed to take into consideration all the careful work of all the science fiction writers all those years about what the future would be and what it would include and how many of us there were who were going to be there. And I, I, remember, I remember Chip vividly to this day for having upset me completely. I just lost complete interest in that movie and haven't been back <laughs> to, the, to the sequels because, I, because at that, that failure was so complete. Sometimes the films are, are, are too naive to get what's sophisticated in science fiction, but it's a worse thing when they're too sophisticated to get what the naive truth of the heart of science fiction. I'll extend science fiction to include Superman, right? who's already been smuggled into our uh, canon. The, the most interesting thing about Superman, which is visible to you only if you read the thing, I would not say psychologically, crypt-analytically as well as analytically. <laughs> not choosing one level over the other, but insisting on both, yes. is that Superman is impotent. Neither in the form of Clark Kent nor in the form of Superman can he ever make it with Lois Lane. This says something extremely important about the macho dream. That's behind the whole thing. The movie missed it. Yeah. They gave him <laughs> Lois Lane. <laughs> um, I don't want to really change the subject, but we're getting down to the end of the time, and I really have been dying to ask this question. Um, it has to do with political fashion in science fiction. And it gets kind of, it's it, another interesting thing about Star Wars is that the social system that ta they talk about in Star Wars is really an extremely backward social system for the kind of technology they're talking about. One thing I've noticed in American science fiction in the last 20 years, maybe it has to do with uh, political fashion, maybe it has to do with the corporate concentration in publishing, but it seems to me that science fiction is not... Uh, really conceptualizing completely different social systems the way it did 20 years ago. When you look at stuff from Frederick Pohl or stuff like that, and what you have with the Star Wars, the new Star Wars generation of writers, you know, the 
I'm, I'm speaking specifically about Niven and Purnell, the most advanced kind of uh, society they can seem to think of is kind of modeled on the uh, Holy Roman Empire or the Roman Empire or something like that. And I, I was kind of wondering what you guys' reaction to that tendency. Do you think this is a function of Reaganism or something? No, I, <laughs> I, I, well, it goes way back. I, yeah. think, I think um, there's always a relationship between um, conservative politics and, and a dream of, of feudal glory. Uh, I, I think of Star Wars as, as and uh, Livin, Niven and Pornell did um, one to gather uh, oath of fealty, uh, which pictures uh, basically a, a, a large condominium in California under feudal authority, <laughs> uh, and they make a, a systematic case for uh, why this would work. Now, I I don't foresee it. <laughs> I, 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 th I think that, that the uh, authoritarian personality is always going to have daydreams along those lines. I think there has been a lot of interesting science fiction within the last mm, 10, 15 years that hasn't tried to think of the kind of non-authoritarian, uh, non-pyramidal uh, social order that the computer is creating. And uh, the com the comp I think the most interesting problem for the imagination, because um, because it has to do with the size of the world. Uh, throughout the Penn Congress, I, I would hear people presenting uh, very traditional models of the conflict between left and right. To me, the objection to all of these was that. that Yes, but you're not thinking of this, but you're not thinking of that. I mean, the, the, the complexity and enormity of that that's out there and how it gets built and who does it, I mean, we none of us understand at all. And, and, and we have theories about what's going on, but none of the theories really take into account what's there. Uh, the computer is an information system network that is going to be coordinating what's there more and more, and it's going to be creating social relations for us that we, at this point, simply cannot imagine. I mean, uh, it, it's already happening in my life. Uh, it seems to me inevitable that it will in the future, and some science fiction writers are beginning to, uh, isn't William Gibson, right, Neuromancer, uh, seriously trying to, to deal with uh, the world of networking. Uh, that's yeah. uh, the, 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 the question that you, you basically ask uh, intrigues me because it is probably um, the first serious question I can remember ever being asked about science fiction, and it has been asked again and again and again and again. Uh, and it's, it's one that um, I, I suspect as long as people keep asking it, science fiction will here and there will respond to it. Uh, but one of the things that you always have is, uh, I remember the first time somebody pointed out to me that in the last 50 American science fiction novels I had read, capitalism had been projected into the future and then pointed out that in Russian science fiction, communism is projected into the future. Very simple. Uh, and But at, at precisely that point, uh, I found myself incapable of writing a science fiction story set in the future in which uh, I didn't give some thought uh, to a possible alternate, uh, no matter how sketchily I did it, uh, a, a possible alternate uh, socioeconomic system that was not precisely capitalism and not precisely communism. And I, I've always tried to um, 
you know, to play with a notion. Sometime uh, in, in a work like Triton, I'll do it more directly. In a work like Stars in My Pocket, Like Grains of Sand, it, it is so far in the background that you can hardly, you know, you can hardly pull out the, uh, the, the, the details. But it's something that I, I've been aware of. And I think that um, most of the writers who are involved in the highbrow science fiction huh, are. are. Mm. <laughs> John, <laughs> that, may, that may be what distinguishes them. And John, yes. Antarctica <laughs> is, is, is certainly um, uh, a, a case in point. I, I mean, um, the future you've created is, is, is one in which the seeds of a different social order uh, are shown to be sprouting because the conditions operating uh, don't refer either to capitalism or communism. Yes, uh, your question is pertinent. It's just that um, we are, I mean, uh, as a science fiction reader, less a writer, I, I get very annoyed whenever I come up against a book that hasn't been thorough. Uh, no definition here, but I see science fiction as anthropology. That. Um, that what we're doing is describing a place that we've uh, gotten a graduate uh, um, grant to visit. <laughs> and uh, if you're a bad anthropologist, you're going to miss the fact that the nightmares that your guide has, um, has had the night before that's made him so bad that he's, that he's undercooked your bacon. You're going to miss that the fact that those nightmares are the most important thing that's going to happen to you today. And uh, much of the science fiction that Purnell and Niven write is, I mean, it's, I mean, they could. I mean, it's bad journalism, let alone bad science fiction. So that uh, if we're really good writers about the future, it uh, it's not recognizable to us. It's um, intimidating to us. The vocabulary is different. Chip's mentioned it again and again. When you come up against a word or that wonderful phrase that Chip managed to produce that I couldn't about technological phrase about. The monopole magnet mines in the outer asteroid belt right. Delta Cygni. <laughs> right. When I read that, I know that I'm somewhere I want to be because I have no idea what's going on, but it clearly makes sense. And it would be casual jargon to the people living in this world, just like our jargon is about, um, about Star Wars or about uh, the IRT. So that uh, if you were to say, is this Reaganism? No, it's not Reaganism. It's bad sci-fi. I think bad I, science fiction. I think that it's certainly, it's certainly <laughs> possible that it's far, e and writers have known this, it's what one reason why novels were so, uh, became so popular in 19th century England. It's very, it's easier to describe a stratified society where labels are easier to pin on people. That's one thing. I do think, though, that you're right. I think that cultural fashions do change. Co fashions for the sorts of governments and the sorts of societies projected in science fiction novels do change. When I, when I started writing my